Amen. Let's bless it. We love you, Lord. Hallelujah. You may be seated in this portion of the kingdom of God. How many are in the kingdom of God today? Amen. My heart belongs to God. This church belongs to God. My house, my family. How many of you want Jesus to have his way in all of your life? Amen. So good to see you this morning. Such a blessing to be in the house of God. Let's open up our Bibles to John chapter 1. I'm so excited that you're here. Go to verse 14. How many have been enjoying the book of John? Have you, have you been encouraged? Some of you. What about the rest of you? You bored already? You're done with chapter 1. You're ready to move on to deeper things. Let's go to deeper things, Pastor. No, I think this is as deep as it gets. I'm giving to you the best that I have right now. I pray that this blesses you because it's blessing me. I don't want to be up here all by myself just being blessed. But I have been encouraged by this word as we've been going through it. Those who are new, thank you for coming. We're going through the Gospel of John verse by verse, and uh, we're somewhere around verse 14 now, and somewhere around, I think, the 10th sermon. (laughs) So I don't know how long it's going to be that we're going to be in the Gospel of Juan, but we're going to be here for a while. Amen? And I'm okay with that because... Everyone here, I think, uh, could be blessed by the gospel of, of John. I think we all can grow in this. As a matter of fact, when you start out your Christian life, most Christians and leaders will recommend start reading the gospel of John because it's such an intriguing gospel. They're all good, obviously, but there's so many good things there. If you're in John chapter 1, verse 14, can you say I'm there? Thank you. What I would like to talk to you today, uh, if I'm going to say it in the King James, is in the bosom of the Father. That's what I would like to talk to you today about, in the bosom of the Father, or in the NIV, just close to Jesus. Somebody say, close to Jesus. Amen. So in the bosom of the Father or close to Jesus, you'll see where I'm getting that from. Verse 14, the Word became flesh and made His dwelling among us. We have seen His glory, the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. Uh, What's another name for the Word? Like, what do we call the Word today? Jesus. We call the word Jesus. The Bible is the word of God. That's okay, sister. I mean, I would rather you try than not try. Uh, The Bible is the word of God, but in this context of John chapter 1, the word is Jesus. What's another word for the person of the Son? Who do we call the Son? Jesus. Now, do you notice here that we are given the identification of the subject matter that we have been talking about in previous verses. I just want you to know that because oftentimes we as Christians, we jump from the Word to the Son to Jesus, and many people don't know why we're doing that. This is why we do that. The Word was with God in the beginning, okay, and He was God, okay? And then it says the Word became flesh, but we want to know who that is. And it says we have seen the glory of the one and only Son. So now we know that Jesus is the Son and Jesus is the eternal Word. That's important if you're dealing with other cults, which I won't give them time today. Just if you ever run into anyone who tries to say the Word is not Jesus, now you can explain that to them. What we also talked about is that Jesus, when He came, He came full of grace and truth. Somebody say grace and truth. 
Now, I could divert into another sermon series just on what we talked about last week in Grace and Truth, but I leave that to you because as a good preacher, I should make you hungry for the things of God that you go back home and study. But I want to be honest with you, just in my heart, I'm not even close to done with that. That could have been a whole other sermon series where we not only just go through the first chapters of John, we only went to eight chapters of John and see Grace and Truth, we could have gone through the whole Bible. We could have just kept going on and on and just digging deep into that because think of it, as full of grace and truth as Jesus is, is as much as we are to be full of grace and truth in our lives, and that is an eternal, that is an eternal quest because there's no end to the depth of God's grace or love. How many believe that? So you are for the rest of your life, your Christian life, and not only here on this earth, but for eternal life, zoe, eternal life in the Greek there, you are to be on a quest to discover God's grace and truth. In other words, I don't think in heaven you're going to say, I got this grace thing down. When you come to rule and reign with Christ, I don't think you're going to say, okay, I understand grace now. How God would send his son and how the son of God would become flesh and die for me. I don't think you'll ever get to the point where you say, I've achieved that. And and, and an illustration of this is God's love knows no height nor depth or with. And so those kinds of things should intrigue us for our whole life. And then not to mention, if I had more time, a truth that I, I honestly think in heaven, while, while we're there waiting to rule and reign, and then in the new heavens and earth, we'll be on an eternal quest of truth. I think the part of, of us that desires to grow and to learn is a part of the image of God. And I think that when we're in heaven, we'll be intrigued by the truth of God going deeper and deeper and deeper into how he made things, how the natural world is, how God God's mind operates. How many love truth? How many ever get lost in the Discovery Channel? How many ever get lost watching different things on Animal Planet? Or you, you know, you get lost in different things about mathematics, or you find something on the internet that talks about the consciousness. All of these things are just a taste of God's truth and his greatness in our lives. Now let's go to verse 15. John testified, John the Baptist speaking, in the Gospel of John, written by John the Apostle. Uh, John the Apostle, love clarifying that for you. John testified concerning him. He cried out saying, this is the one I spoke about when I said he comes after me. He has surpassed me because he was before me. So John says, the one who comes after me in time, as in being born, is actually before me. Could anyone from this point on make an argument from the book of John that believes Jesus is just a mere human prophet? No, because right here in the book of John, we know Jesus is equal to God. He has the same abilities as God. All things have been created through him and for him. And John the Baptist is saying, he came before me. So the one that comes after me in one way has come before me in another way. He has even surpassed me. And so what does that mean? When Jesus came into the flesh, his flesh was younger than John the Baptist. He came after John the Baptist in the flesh. But his spirit, his nature as being God predates John the Baptist. He was there at the very beginning. Can I hear an amen? Amen. So I just want everybody to see that. That's another thing you can do. As a matter of fact, by God's grace, over the last 20 years, I have been able to refute every major false teaching about Jesus and all the major cults just by John 1.1. 
or John chapter 1, verses 1 all the way to 18. You can refute all misunderstandings of Jesus here. Oh, he was just a good man. No, he's the God man. Oh, you know, the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, they're just different manifestations of the one God. Oneness Pentecostalism, it can be refuted here. No, he's face-to-face, prostanteon, and the word was with God. He is prostanteon in the Greek, face-to-face with God. As we'll learn here, he's in his bosom. He's not in the bosom of himself. Wouldn't that be weird? I, don't even, I can't even touch my chin onto my bot, uh, top part of my chest, let alone to dwell on my own chest, okay? Um, Jehovah Witnesses, oh, he's just an angel. He's a secondary God. No, there's only one God. Hero Israel, Deuteronomy 6, uh, 6, 4, Hero Israel, the Lord thy God, the Lord is one. And here we see that that one God has revealed in the Father, Son, and Spirit. You see it right here as we're about ready to get into. Those who say other things about him like Mormonism, oh, he's one of many gods and we get to become a God like him. No, he's the only begotten, unique God in the flesh. The Father didn't become flesh, the Son didn't become flesh, and you're not a God, a pre-existing God in the flesh, working your way back up to divinity. He's the only begotten in that way. So every false doctrine of him just being a mere man or him being a God among many or uh, him being a lowercase God like an angel or the Father and the Son being the same person, we are forced in this way, if we're going to be uh, doctrinally accurate, we are forced into the doctrine of the Trinity. I don't come in uh, looking for a doctrine to believe in by choice in this way. I come forced by the context to accept the Trinity because it teaches it hard facts. Fast and true. Are you listening to me? Within 18 verses, it's fast, it's true, and it's a hard fact. So all these other doctrines are man-made creations to try to make a God in our image. The triune God is not in our image. We are made in the image of God, multi-faceted um, with body, soul, and spirit. He is Father, Son, and Spirit. In that way, maybe there's some type of a comparison. But the comparison ends there because my spirit and my soul are not different than my body in the sense of having equal uh, personalities. I don't have schizophrenia. Is everybody listening to me? But the Father, Son, and Spirit are equal in their personality different but same in their uh, nature. And so when we see us being made complex in the image of God, there's a beauty to that. But let us understand that God is not made in our image. Let us understand that we are made in God's image. The, the shadow is an image of me. I'm not an image of the shadow. And so if we try to look at ourselves and say, I have to find a God to fit into the shadow because I'm the shadow of God. I have to figure it out here in the shadow land. We are taken away from God and who he is. God is far above us, greater than us in all ways. And so it's not, uh, sometimes people say, well, the Trinity and things like this are not logical. But that is incorrect. God is not a God of dislogic or um, a God is not a God of disorder. He is not a God of falsehood. As a matter of fact, he says he cannot lie. Uh, anything that is untrue is a lie. So what is to us logic is that God is three in one. In this, and the one way he is one in being in nature. In another way, he is three as in personality. I am not saying he's one and three in the same ways. I'm not saying there's one person of God in one way, and then there's three persons of God in another way. Do you understand that's a contradiction? I said, do you understand that's a contradiction? I'm not saying there's one person of God, and then there's three persons of God, and that's the same thing. What I'm saying is there's one nature of God shared by three persons. There is one nature, three persons. Persons are multiple, nature is one. Do you understand? 
Because what people try to do is they try to use math to disprove God when God created math out of his own image. And they try to say 1 plus 1 plus 1 equals 3, but you say 1 plus 1 plus 1 equals 1. That's not what we're doing. I love what Pastor Ray said, 1 times 1 times 1 is 1, if you change how you're doing that. Uh, But even better than that is to understand we're talking about uh, uh, adding persons versus nature. When I'm saying 1 plus 1, the Father is 1, the Son is 1, the Holy Spirit is 1, I am adding persons, not natures. And so in God, there is one nature with three persons. And so just make sure that you understand that. And when you explain it to others, you can show them in simple ways from the Scripture. But don't try to go into things like showing an egg has a shell and then a white part and then a yolk and say that's like God. Because once again, in God, the shell, the the white part, and the yolk all have individual personalities. Do you understand? Within the egg, the shell is different than the white part and is different than the yolk. Uh, They may be be in one sense in nature an egg, but they are in a different form. They are in a different way, and they are not each individually sharing of each other's nature in the same way. So people get into these bad examples. Another bad example is water. They say steam, ice, and uh, liquid. But once again, the liquid is not the steam at the same time. See, what we are saying is Father, Son, and Spirit exist equally as the nature of God with individual personalities. And then another one, uh, St. Patrick, who I love, he, he showed in the three-leaf clover, oh, this is one uh, leaf with three different manifestations, almost like parts. See, when you tear off one part, you have two parts left. That is like making God into a pie. All equally share the whole, and that's the problem where we now run into, is we try to find examples where equals and persons share wholes. But there is no example on earth. Turn with me to Isaiah chapter 44. Somebody say, "Uh uh-huh. There are no equals on earth, and that is something that you have to understand. Water is not an equal to God and his nature. Humans are not an equal to God and his nature. Um, Other things that I mentioned, the four-leaf clover. How many know a four-leaf clover is not going to be equal to God and his nature? How many think a four-leaf clover is going to be limited in describing the God who created it? Amen. Go to Isaiah chapter 44. I want to show you that there's no one equal to God. And so I want us to avoid making things in the image of God. And then when people hold us uh, to these uh, examples and then they try to disprove us, uh, we, we feel like they disproved the Trinity. No, they disproved your, your lame example. Don't use them. It's forbidden. Amen. Who would you liken me to? Go to Isaiah chapter 44, uh, starting there in verse 7. Go to verse 7. Isaiah chapter 44. Uh, well, go to verse 6. It says, This is what the Lord says, Israel's King and Redeemer, the Lord Almighty. I am the first and I am the last. Apart from me, there is no God. Who then is like me? Okay, is anybody like our God? Okay, so, so who then is like me? A three-leaf clover is like you, God. That's what you're supposed to answer, right? Because some uh, tricky theologian, uh, some slick theologian wanted to uh, make you buy, you know, buy their book and, and share their YouTube video. So when God says, who is like me? You're supposed to say, silly God, water is like you. 
As a matter of fact, most of the examples I gave you are examples of modalism, a false doctrine, that God is the Father in one manifestation, the Son in another manifestation, and the Holy Spirit in another manifestation. That is exactly what the water example is like. And then when we think of the egg example, that's exactly what Mormonism is like. Here's the Father, one God all by himself. Then here's another God, the Son, a God all by himself. And then the Holy Spirit, a God all by himself like shell, white, and yoke. And then together, they make up a group of gods acting as one God. Together, these three different parts of an egg make an egg. That's, that's polytheism. Are you understanding what I'm saying? I said, are you understanding what I'm saying? I know it may not be cute to share on Facebook, but I need you to get away from silly examples. I am the first. I am the last. Apart from me, there is no God. Who then is like me? Let him proclaim it, let him declare, and lay out before me. And he goes on to describe his divine attributes. But there is no one like our God. We are not supposed to answer back to that and say, oh, our God is like water. Our God is like steam. Our God is like um, a a three-leaf clover. Our God is like all of these natural things. No, remember this as we go back to our passage in John, that we are made in the image of God. God is not made in our image. That is a huge difference because that's why when you look to creation, you say, well, because people will say this, well, show me in creation something that looks like the Trinity. Silly idolater, I'm not supposed to do that. Do you understand? Slap the theological hand right off. I'm not supposed to compare him to what he created. That's the entire point. I am not to compare him to what he created. He created three-leaf clovers. He is not like a three-leaf clover. He cre- he's greater than a th- three-leaf clover. He, he may have similarities in something to what he has created in, in, in the sense that a three-leaf clover is organized. God is organized, right? He created us. We are the most organized. That's why we bear his image and a three-leaf clover doesn't. But by bearing his image, we bear it in a plural of persons sharing a family, the two shall become one, and, and uh, we, we reason, we know good from evil, and so forth. But this, once again, is limited by our abilities. So it's not, comp- well, well, you know, can uh, somebody will say like, well, Joe, are you and your wife and uh, your children, this is the image of God, plurality in one family, do you guys share the same mind? Do you share the same nature? Is your, is your oneness in the same way of God? And I go, no, of course not, because the family is made in the image of God. God is not made made in the image of a family. He's not limited by what I'm limited by. And so I just want everyone to understand that when we hear these next few verses, that you understand this is the Bible teaching you what the Trinity is like, what the three are like. They share one name and nature. Baptize them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the what? The Holy Spirit. Now talking about Jesus, verse 16, out of his fullness we have all received grace in place of grace already given. That's amazing. I wish we could stay there. But now notice here in verse 17 to 18, for the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. So we're supposed to understand, and you read the book of Hebrews, that Jesus Christ is greater than Moses because Moses had a temporary role with the law to be a tutor to God's people. I love how this has been um, 
uh, correlating with our series in the second service in Galatians, and I encourage you to listen to that because in Galatians, we're going to understand that God gave Abraham a promise not based on law, and that was before Moses, obviously. And then Paul's um, example here is that if God gave Abraham a promise and it was based on faith, 430 years of law does not change that. We're coming into the promise. We're not doing this by the law of Moses. And then he explains what was the point of the law of Moses. It was a tutor for that human history and the people of God to know how they fell short of the glory of God and that they needed a perfect sacrifice. Can I hear somebody say the Lamb of God? And so that's what we're learning here. And even just a few more verses, John the Baptist is going to proclaim Jesus to be the Lamb of God. But that's what he's building up to. Uh, The law came through Moses. It was good, but it was a tutor. We were not meant to live in that law. We were meant to live in a relationship with Jesus Christ. And that's why we need grace and truth. And so the law, it will tell you the things you've done wrong, but it can't forgive you. You have to have a blood sacrifice for that. And if it's an animal, you got to keep doing it, right? Who is the true fulfillment of all the animal sacrifice? What's his name? Jesus. But then grace is not just there so that you can keep sinning to be forgiven. Grace comes with truth so that you can be transformed to keep the commands of God. Amen? Amen. So the one and only son, okay, so back up here. Let's go to verse 17. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. Now look at verse 18. Here is the climax of the Trinity being taught to us in this passage. No one has ever seen God but the one and only son who is himself God and is in closest relationship with the father has made him known. Notice that passage right now as we get ready to preach in the bosom of the Father. I'm going to show you why I'm using that term bosom in just a moment, but I want everyone to see the Trinity one more time before we make it applicable to our lives. Notice that no one has ever seen God, but the one and only Son who is himself what? God has made him known. Now I want you to think about this. When Jesus came into the flesh, he is God among us. Emmanuel, God with us. I know that it's cute to name some of our children Emmanuel, but in one sense, theologically, it's actually blasphemy. It's okay to have the name Jesus because Jesus means Yahshua saves, and that was applied to humans. But in our debates, some of you parents make it very difficult for us Because in our debates as theologians, we have to explain that Emmanuel was never applied to a person except Christ. In other words, by you doing that out of your own ignorance and poor Manny, wherever Manny's at today, you know, Emmanuel, his nickname Manny, so poor Manny, wherever he's at, thinking his parents blasphemed, you know, um, doesn't understand that that is not Jesus giving names that describe nature. In other words, you look at Elijah, you know, God is with us, or God is uh, hearing us. You hear these names, Daniel, um, uh, Dan L, with Dan and L in it, L being God. Uh, and you see these different names in the Bible, and you say, well, isn't that the same thing with Emmanuel? No. When you learned about or heard the name Elijah, or you heard these different biblical names that had the name of God in them, that was different. God was doing something, and you were hearing about it through these different prophets and so forth. Elijah meaning uh, Yahweh is my God, rather. And so what we think is Emmanuel means the same thing. It does not. Emmanuel, when you were calling somebody that, you were literally saying, God is with us. 
That's what you were saying by that name. When you would say Emmanuel, you're literally saying God is with us. You're not speaking about an act of God. You're not naming God like Elijah, like, you know, um, Yahweh is my God. No, Emmanuel was a name given only to the Messiah, not able to be bore by any person. So how should we deal with this now in the Christian church, people honoring this name? Just make sure that you do not take on the actual meaning of the name and, uh, you know, place it on yourself. You are not God with us. Daniel meaning God, L is my judge. Do you understand the difference between saying something like God is my judge and then a name that says God is with me now? Do you see the difference or God is here That is what Emmanuel literally means. And so when we see that God was with us through Jesus Christ, we are now seeing the unseen God. We are now seeing, think about this, the unseen God. I want to show you this in the life of Hagar. I want you to turn with me to Genesis chapter 18. How many know uh, Hagar is a special person in the Bible? How many know it wasn't her fault to get pregnant with Abraham's baby? She didn't ask to be a baby mama of Abraham, did she? She was just a maidservant, minding her own business. Why are you looking at me like that, Abe? I'm just here cleaning the house. What, what, what you got in mind? Well, my wife told me that I need to make... Your wife told you what? I need to make love to you. You're going to have my baby. No, uh, go to Genesis uh, chapter 16. I was getting ahead of myself there, sorry. Genesis chapter 16. Genesis 18, we've been there many times on the plains of Mamre. Poor Hagar, she gets cast out. Start in chapter 16. Um, we'll get her story here. Well, let's just go down to verse 6 for, for uh well, go to verse 7 for the sake of time. She's basically leaving now because um, she knows that there's going to be some issues here with Sarah because Sarah's really double-minded in what she's doing, and she's not going to want another woman to have her husband's baby, okay? So she's fleeing now from Sarah. And look at verse 7. The angel of the Lord found Hagar near a spring in the desert. It was the spring that is beside the road to Shur. He said, Hagar, slave of Sarah, Where have you come from and where are you going? She said, I am running away from my mistress or my master Sarah, she answered. The angel of the Lord told her, go back to your mistress and submit to her. The angel added, I will increase your descendants so much that they will be too too numerous to count. Now that's pretty amazing. It's the angel of the Lord. Who came and appeared to her? Who? The angel of the Lord. Now look at how she names this place with this encounter with the angel of the Lord. Remember, Jesus is the God who we have seen when we cannot see the God who is unseen. Look at this in verse 13. She gave this name to the Lord who spoke to her. Oh, we dropped off that part, the angel of the Lord. We dropped off that part. Now it says she just gave this name to the Lord who spoke to her. So it seems that the angel of the Lord can be Yahweh as well. Now let's keep going to make sure we don't misunderstand her. She said, you are the God who sees me. She says to the angel of the Lord, now she is calling Yahweh. She says, I'm going to name this place. You are the God who sees me, for I have now seen the one who sees me. Does everybody see that? I said, do you see it? If you can read it, say amen. 
If you can hear it, say amen. If you can do both, say amen. You can read it and you hear it. I have now seen the one who sees me. But going back to the notes, I thought we can't see God. But hold on, there's a God that we can see. It's the same one that Hagar saw. Jesus is the seen God from whom we cannot see. We cannot see the Father, but we can see the Son. This is where I trip up my friends all the time from different religions who think that Jesus is something less than Yahweh. What do you do with that? I hear them try to explain the narrative. They run to the Jewish rabbis, and the Jewish rabbis are the same ones who get rebuked by our Jesus, so I'll meet them there any day, any time, in Jesus' name. Amen. I'll give them the same rebukes that our Jesus gave them. The Lord said to my Lord, don't have time to get into Psalm 110, right, uh, 110, but Jesus knew how to deal with them. But this is what the rabbis will say. Oh, all of this is just a narrative of how she's describing what it's like to be with the angel. The angel is an agent, and therefore now it's appropriate to call the agent of the Lord by the one that uh, the angel was representing. And now she's going to say that he has seen her, but in, and she has seen him, the one who has seen her. But in actuality, she hasn't actually seen God. She's only seen the agent. Some may say the devil is a liar. Agency in the Bible can only take you so far, and that is to the point of someone representing someone else. But it is inappropriate for them to speak in the name of that person without them distinguishing who they are. If you've ever seen 300 or other movies where there's agents involved, like at the beginning where he kicks that guy down, he says, this is Sparta. What he had said to him was, basically as an ambassador, he said, what you say here now, you're going to be held responsible. So it doesn't matter if you're now speaking on behalf of somebody else. We know that you're different than that person. So now I'm going to hold you responsible too if you say what they say. And when we look to the Bible, agents would come and speak on behalf of their bosses and leaders. Sometimes you would see this, you know, with the kings and so forth. But you could never call the agent the king. You could never look back at the ambassador and say, yes, we'll do exactly what you said, O great and mighty King David. You couldn't look at the agent and call them by the name of somebody else. Did you get that here? You could write a, if you were a secretary, you could write an email on behalf of somebody else, but you can't show up to a meeting and expect people to call you by your boss's name. Agency in the Bible is very similar to how we use it now today. Sometimes we go, well, way back then it was different. So way back then they were stupid. So way back then you would look at somebody you know wasn't that person and then you would call them by that name. And not only that, but somehow this would play with God and the divine name you only give to him. You're saying now that it would be okay for Yahweh in heaven, for this woman, Hagar, to call one of his creatures the great I am, the I am that I am, Yahweh. That's okay with our God? Have you seen what our God says he's not okay with? You touch that ark the wrong way, you're going down, Jack. That's our God. So you're not giving his name to another. Matter of fact, I can show you that in the scripture if I have time. You cannot give his name or his glory to another. So agency only takes you so far, my rabbinic friend. You're left with the obvious reading of the text. Hagar says she sees the one that you can't see. 
She then says that you have done this for me so that I can put this altar here, this name of this place, and honor you here. Well, now going back to our notes, we begin to understand who that person is that's been popping up in history all throughout the Old Testament, taking on the name of Yahweh or the messenger. Remember, angel just means messenger. The messenger of Yahweh. Who's been this mediator between the Father and mankind? It's been the God-man, Jesus Christ. And yet, he hasn't taken on flesh permanently. He can take it on for a little bit to eat food, for you to touch his feet as he did in Genesis 18, for you to shake his hand or to greet him. But he has not become incarnate. So we call this the pre-incarnate manifestations of Jesus. But now he's taking on flesh to dwell with us. Somebody say, in the bosom of the Father. I just want to say this now one more time, and then we'll move on from this. But I want you to get the theology. Somebody say, good preaching is coming. I know I've been doing some good teaching, but y'all came for some preaching. Amen. They should be the same, but let's just go on. Zechariah chapter 2, verse 11. I love to preach and teach, and of course, they are the same thing in many ways, but I just want to teach it before I preach it. Or as one preacher said, I want to tell it before I yell it. <laughs> Can I tell it before I yell it? <laughs> okay. Zechariah chapter 2, uh, verse 11. I believe you passed it up there. Oh, now you got it. Thank you, my brother. Now, I want you to notice this. This is a prophet speaking about what God is going to do in the latter days. And uh, starting here at verse 11, it says, Many nations will be joined with the Lord in that day and will become my people. Let's just go up to verse 10 so you can see the context here. Shout and be glad, daughter Zion, for I am coming and will live among you, declares who? Declares who? The Lord. So the Lord says, shout and get happy because I'm coming to live among you, declares Jehovah, declares Yahweh. Who's talking here? Who's declaring here? The Lord is declaring. Now keep reading. Verse 11. Many nations will be joined with the Lord in that day and will be my people. Okay, sometimes he speaks about himself in the third person. We make room for that in the scripture. I will live among you, and you will know that the Lord Almighty has sent me to you. Hold on. We went from talking about yourself in the third person to saying that you're the Lord who got sent by the Lord. Read the verse again, chapter 2, verse 10 of Zechariah. The Lord declares I will live among you. He says, I will live among you, declares the Lord. Many nations will be joined with the Lord in that day. We're, like I said, okay with the third person, nothing strange happening here yet. I will live among you, and you will know that the Lord Almighty has sent me to you. Well, hold on. Who's talking to me? The Lord. Well, who's sending you? The Lord. Are there two of you in person? Are there two in nature? No, just one. Where's the Holy Spirit? Keep reading. <laughs> He's coming too. Do you notice how the Scripture forces us, if you're going to be honest, just like two plus two forces you to put four there. I'm not saying like you can't if you don't want to, you can put five, but I'm saying if you're being honest with the math, you are forced by the math to put two plus two equals what? And when you read the scripture, you come to one God in three persons. Are you with me? Now go back to John chapter 1, verse 18. Somebody say, make it plain. Come on, you need something to be encouraged with tomorrow. I know good doctrine will help you, but you need something to encourage you tomorrow as you go to your job, as we go about our lives. We don't just come here for Bible class. Doctrine is good. But I want you to see why I took my time doing that, because it says, 
Only the Son has been in this relationship with the Father. Now, if you scroll down, good sir, we're going to show them in the King James why I've been saying the word bosom. Look at John 1.18. He's with God, and he is in the bosom of the Father. You see, the one who was in the bosom of the Father, and bosom means chest, the one that was in the bosom of the Father would come down and speak with Adam and Eve in the cool of the day. That's my Jesus. When you look to the Bible and you see who is meeting with Hagar, that's Jesus coming from the bosom of the Father. Are you guys tracking with me? On the plains of Mamre in Genesis chapter 18 with two of his angels that he's about ready to send to Sodom and Gomorrah, that's Jesus coming from the bosom of his Father. When it comes to the burning bush and meeting with Moses on the mountain, it is Jesus coming from the bosom of his father to meet with us. Are you guys tracking with me? When we go to the prophecies of Zechariah, when it says that the Lord is going to come be with us and dwell with us and that he's being sent by the Lord, what we're supposed to understand is that the son is coming from the bosom of the father to be with us. That's what we're supposed to understand. Now, that word bosom in the, in the Greek, you only find one other place in the book of John, and that's there at the Last Supper, John chapter 13, verse 23. And there's a discussion about who this traitor, Judas, you know, who is this traitor going to be because we don't know it yet in the narrative of, of, of it being Judas. They're asking that question, and Peter talks to the one next to him to ask Jesus who it is. Now, this is the position I want you to get this, of how John, who's the gospel writer, telling the story of the position that he was in when Peter asked him, who is the one that's going to betray us? Now there was leaning on Jesus's what? Leaning on Jesus's what? Bosom, one of his disciples whom Jesus loved. John, writing about himself, said that when Peter asked, who is it that's going to betray you? He looked to the one lying on, leaning on the bosom of Jesus. And that's the one that Jesus loved. Can I encourage somebody here today that the same way that Jesus has been in the bosom of the Father, he has given us his bosom to be close to him. That once used to be impossible for us to be close to God except in these moments of visitation. God has now come down to be with us so that we might be as close to him as he has been close to the Father. That through Jesus Christ there is a way to come to the Father. It's not that we just have something against Muhammad. It's that he's not at the bosom of the Father. That's the problem. It's not that we're just mad at Buddha. It's that he's not in the bosom of the Father. Because if I'm going to lay my head on anybody's bosom, I want it to be on the one that's closest to the Father. I want to lay my head on Jesus because Jesus is laying his head on the Father. Because Jesus made a way for you and I. We get the same closeness of relationship that he has with the Father from all of eternity. Humanity gets to participate in the love of divinity through Jesus Christ. Humanity gets to participate in the love of divinity within the Trinity that has been going on for ages because of Jesus Christ. Was this not the intention we were created for? 
to have relationship with God, to be so close to him that you could smell his hummus breath. <laughs> what you been eating, Jesus? Laying on your chest. Did you have some of that garlic hummus, Jesus? I can smell it. You've been drinking that wine, Jesus? I can smell it. Hallelujah. So close to him that you could smell his breath. People in the world have tried to make this into a homosexual Jesus. I have to say it is gross and disgusting as it is. But they try to say this was Jesus being a pederast with John, allowing him to touch and to fondle and to be close. And God have mercy on such wicked images that come into wicked people's minds. This is not perversion. This is a, this is a diversion. This is a diversion from the fall of man back to the original version of man with God. We're, we're not being perverse. We're diverting from the sin that we've been in back to why we were creating the original version. It's not a perversion. It's a diversion back to the original version. Help me preach it, Jesus. We have been diverted from this relationship. This is where we were always supposed to be. And we got diverted by our sin. We need to repent and go back. Make another turn and go back to his bosom. Can I hear an Amen. And so how do we do this, right? Like, how do I get close to Jesus when his physical body is now resurrected and at the right hand of his Father? How do I and how do you do what John did? Because how many here want to lay their head upon Jesus' bosom? How many want to be this close to Jesus today? How do we do that? Let's go on down and see in the Scriptures today. Go with me to Romans chapter 8, verse 4. Uh, 8, 14 rather. Romans chapter 8, verse 14. Well, the first thing is we have to understand the new birth. Now, Jesus came so that we might be born again, and you can read that in John chapter 3. But the first step to this union between us and God is a spiritual rebirth. And is that not why he said it was good that he goes back to the Father so that he might send the Holy Spirit? Isn't that what he said, y'all? He said, it's good that I go away, right? How many would say, man, that's not good, Jesus. I've been hanging out with you. I'm going to miss you. Like John could have said that. It's not good for me. I've been laying my head on your chest. I've been this close. Jesus, I've been this close to you. How am I going to have that same relationship? But Jesus explains, and we're going to get there in John 14, 15, and 16, that it's the Holy Spirit that's going to make us all able to be that close to Jesus. Otherwise, in his own physical body, and I truly believe this, even on the new earth, he will be in one place at one time. Though by the Holy Spirit, he will be able to do what he has been doing here. But I want you to understand this. He will be seated on a throne. And I know sometimes we think to ourselves, well, is he going to shape shift into a billion different Jesuses? So you fishing with Jesus, I'm hiking with Jesus, and then he's also chilling over there. No, you've been reading too many fortune cookies, watching, you know, different uh, Marvel movies or, or Hindu, you know, uh, Hindu stories, because that's not what he's going to do. He's going to be in one place at one time. You're going to see him there, and then you're going to you're going to be in the millennial reign. This is what we believe. Rapture happens seven years of tribulation. Millennial reign, he 
he shows how the kingdom of God would come on earth as it is in heaven, then the final judgment and new heavens and new earth we rule and reign for eternity. So whether it's the thousand years or the new heavens and new earth, this will be you coming to Jesus. Hi, Jesus. I just wanted to appear before your throne today. Now I'm walking away from your throne as you stay there. <laughs> I'm going, you're there. That's what it's going to be like. Like I said, it's not like then Jesus is going to shape shift into Siri and then now be in your pocket and you just take him with you wherever you go. When they go, here's my little Jesus. He just appears as a hologram on your hand. When we say Jesus lives in our heart, you have to understand that's that third person of the Trinity. It's the Holy Spirit that brings the Father and the Son with us, but he has a body that he is seated next to the Father in his throne. Does everybody get that? So I'm sorry to spoil your fishing trip with Jesus, but on, on the new earth and in the millennial reign, he's on a throne. That's what he's doing. And you'll be able to go see him and talk with him. And I'm sure he'll make time for us in eternity for us all to ask him all of our questions. Because everybody's got questions for Jesus. Ah, Jesus, I got a question about this. How come this girl didn't like me? I felt it with you. I prayed a lot. I really thought it with you. But she didn't say it wasn't you, and now I'm lonely. (laughs) Why did that happen? Like, we're all going to do that, right? So I know that's how you think, like, all heaven is about. But really... What heaven is about is living in the glory of God, fulfilling our purpose with him. Notice even in the garden, as he came to walk, that means in the cool of the day, that means he wasn't walking before that. So we kind of get this idea that we're just Jesus' pet, that we're always supposed to be on his leash, and that's the way it's supposed to be in closeness. And so when we think, everybody get this, when we think of closeness now with John being there, and we don't get what John had, we think that's, that means I'm not as close to Jesus. Because, uh, you know, John got to be that close, and I'm not that close. No, my friends, the Bible talks about the presence of the Lord. And where the presence of the Lord is, he is there. And so what we were supposed to understand from the garden to the other disciples and to those, uh, you know, who walked with Jesus, who didn't have their head on his chest in that way at that same moment, is that if his presence were there, they were really as close as John was. But the image that we're supposed to have is that the Spirit draws us and that the Spirit to our spirit is like deep waters calling out to deep as the tide comes and pulls the water back unto itself so that it can be pushed back out again. This relationship is spirit unto spirit from glory unto glory. It's not just being God's pet, though I know that is romantic to think about sometimes. I'll just sit at the feet of Jesus all day long. He's going to say, get up on your feet and do something. Do you guys understand? Like at the millennial reign, you're just going to be like, I just want to sit at the feet of Jesus. He's going to be like, put Chicago in order. How many know there's ruling and reigning in the kingdom? Some of you, I'm just going to sit at the feet of Jesus. Jesus is going to be like, you've been at my feet long enough now. Go on over there and do something. Does everybody get that? Because that's what we think. Because when, when he, but you got to go back to the beginning. When he made Adam and Eve, was it just Adam and Eve? Ah, ah. No, they were what they were they supposed to do? Go have dominion. Go name the animals. Go make a little love. Hallelujah. Make a little love tonight. You know what I'm saying? So it's like boom, like there was stuff to do. So in the kingdom, when we say God is close to us, I want everyone that's already hearing this religiously. What does that mean now I live in the church 24-7? Remember, the, the, the priest had to go to that place called the temple because that's where he was 
present 24-7 because he wasn't always present on them. That's why they had to go there. Does everybody get that? That's why they had to go there because his presence had not yet been given to every single one of them to dwell. As a matter of fact, when you look at the language of the Bible, of the anointing, how the Spirit would come, it's almost like the example we get with Elijah and the cloak that then came along Elijah, that the anointing would come on them, and then at times it would come off of them, and then other times it would come on and remain, and then other times it would come off of them. And that's why David said, oh, if I could just dwell in the house of the Lord forever all the days of my life. But how many know what he was praying for we now have today because God dwells within us all the days of our life. He was saying, I got to go there to that temple to get this connection and his heart would yearn for it. But Jesus said, I got something better. Instead of all y'all trying to fit into this temple about the size of a football field, I'm going to come and send the Holy Ghost who's going to be in you and you and you and you and me. Come on, somebody. But I love that language of closeness because we're not supposed to miss it. It's the two extremes. We're not God's pet sitting at his feet just always just sitting there saying, this is all I'm supposed to do. No, there's a purpose in life. And at the same time, we're not just going out from Jesus with his Wi-Fi going, that's enough. No, the, the, the Holy Spirit is greater than Wi-Fi. He brings the person, not just the power, not just an energy, not just some information. He's actually bringing the person of Jesus. So it's not an either or, it's right there in the middle. I'm at the feet of Jesus always, but I'm always doing things. I'm at the feet of Jesus, I'm at his bosom, but I'm going to work to, uh, within his bosom, leaning on his bosom, but I'm going to work today. I can't speak in tongues when the guy asks me, what's the report, you know, coming in from October, how are we doing in finances? Boom, shakalaka, laka. You know what I'm saying? How, how are sales, Gus? Boom, shakalaka, laka. I can't speak in tongues to my boss, nor do I want my employees speaking in tongues to me. Have we sold that uh, property yet? Well, I bought a Hyundai, but I should have bought a Toyota. That's not what we're supposed to answer back with. You understand? And so sometimes when people hear that Paul was always in prayer, they think that's what it means. No, it means always here to be connected to Jesus. Everything always being filtered through Jesus. Laying our head upon Jesus' breast is literally not walking around as a Siamese twin going through life like this, you know. It's having an understanding of closeness and relationship. Look at Romans 8.14 in the description of the born-again life. Number one, we have to be born again to receive that spirit. For those who are led by the spirit of God are children of God. Do you notice that we're being led by the spirit of God? You're going to be led to go somewhere else tomorrow, and I want you to go there this close with Jesus. You're going to go somewhere I'm not going tomorrow, but Jesus will go with you, and you guys are to be this close on that journey you take. Those who are led by the spirit of God are the children of God. The spirit you receive does not make you slaves so that you live in fear again. Rather, the spirit you received brought about your adoption to what? Sonship. Now you understand how important this is. For as close as Jesus is to the Father, now I'm to be close to Jesus. And I will now start to receive what Jesus has. I will receive, as one theologian said, as much of Jesus except his full divinity. So in other words, it's a limitless credit card until we reach his very nature. So I will be everything in every way like him except God. Do you see how amazing that is? That means you can talk to the Father like he talks to the Father. You can have peace like how he has peace. You can have everything that Jesus has now being adopted through the work of Jesus except his actual divinity. 
And even there, just let's give them a little peekaboo. Go to 2 Peter chapter 1. We participate in the divine nature. Go to 2 Peter chapter 1. Somebody say, peekaboo. There's a little peekaboo here that happens that a lot of people get nervous with. I'll be discussing in my Theology 2 class, and it's called deification or the theosis. Eastern Orthodox have spent some time trying to understand these things. It's how do we participate but yet not become. Look at uh, 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 4. Let's we'll start in verse 3. 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 3. His divine nature has given us everything we need for a godly life through our knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and goodness. Through these he has given us very great and precious what? Promises. Somebody say promises. Thank you. Precious promises so that through them you may what? Participate in the divine nature. Woo! You might have been born dirty, but you can get born again divine. You were born a sinner, but you can get born again a saint. Come on, somebody. You were born again ungodly, but you can be born again godly, that you may participate in the divine nature. That clause right there that we just read, you may participate in the divine nature, welcome to eternity. That's what it's about. As I like to say, you'll be dancing with the divine for all of eternity. He'll twist you and turn you and flip you and do all types of things. And he will give you of his, of his personhood as much as he can without making you a God, which would be impossible for him to do. There are things that are impossible. It's impossible for God to lie. Are you listening? It's impossible for God to make another God. How many know that? He's the first and he's the what? Last. Where could we ever fit in between? If he's the first and he's the last, there's no space for you and I to be made a God. Are you listening? But what we do get is a participation in the divine nature. Please, going back to Romans chapter uh, 8 and 14 and onward. The reason why I'm so passionate about this is because I want you to know who you are in Christ. You are a child of God adopted, and by him, talking about the Spirit, by him we cry out, Abba, Father. Isn't that how Jesus taught us to pray? Our Father who art in heaven. Wasn't that just amazing, the relationship that Jesus had? And he said, now through this in relationship you have with me, you'll be able to talk to the Father the same way I do. I know many of us grew up with friends, and some of them had good fathers. And you were able to be like a son in that father's house. That father treated you like a son. And you were able to communicate with him. That's the relationship we're supposed to see, but even greater that if you were around Jesus so much and adopted by Jesus or adopted by the Spirit to the Father's house, you and Jesus now have the same relationship with the Father. You get to call out to the Father just like he does. The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. Who does that? Who's doing the testifying? Come on, who's doing it? Come on, somebody say spirit. Who is the one testifying within us? The Spirit, you see how important the Father, Son, and Spirit are to our relationship with God. As we know God, one in nature, but three in person. Do you see how important this is to understand what they are in our lives as the roles they serve? They are each equally God, but the Father is our progenitor. 
The Son is our Savior, and the Holy Spirit is our comforter and advocate. Why would we ever try to mush them all together in one? Why would we ever try to separate them? The Bible says they are three persons and yet one being. Don't forget those distinctions. When you see, when you see them, you see them as one being, one nature. But when they begin to operate and act, you see them as three separate persons from all of eternity. And that's why we believe that God didn't need us to have this relationship because he already had it within himself, a perfect family. Only two, if you have two, they can only love each other, but they can't love together a third. A perfect family, the perfect number, the, the beginning of a family is three. That is now the, the number that you need to have two love another. You see, if my wife and I just love each other, that is only one kind of love. But the moment we have a child, now her and I can share in the joy of loving another. Does everybody get that? That is a perfect family. Now, you can have more than that as I do. We have six children, so we have a lot for my wife and I have to love together. But the, the, the number that is the least amount or the perfect number of a family that would be the foundation would be three, two, being able to love another. So the father and son can love the spirit. The spirit and father can love the son. So they didn't need us for a relationship. They already had a perfect relationship. That is why if we do not have them as three separate persons, God lacks something in love. If it's really just the father who is the son who is the Holy Spirit just acting out in different roles, like I am a father, I am a son, and I am a pastor, I cannot love myself like I can be loved or love others like I can in a family. Is everybody tracking with me? God is the originator of love and family and all of these things flow through his image and so we ought to take the triune nature of God. But notice this, the spirit inside of us now gives us participation into that nature. We don't take it on, it doesn't become us, but we get to participate in the same way the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit have been together. Now look at verse 17. It says, now if we are children, then we are heirs, heirs of God. And what kind of heirs with Christ? Because he was in the bosom of the Father, and now I can be in his bosom. What kind of heir am I with Christ? A co-heir with Christ. Hallelujah. Does that make anybody happy in church today? co-heirs with Christ. Now notice, if we indeed share in his sufferings in order that we may also share in his glory. Keep on going, please. Now look at this famous passage. How many have read this famous passage before Romans chapter 28? It says, we know in all things God works for the good of those who love him. How many have read that before? But notice this in the context of being in the bosom of the Father through Jesus Christ. Notice this. He works all things for the good of those who love him who have been called according to his purpose. For those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his what? His son. We are conformed to the image of his son. That's why I said you're no longer a sinner. If you're in Christ, you're a saint. You're no longer dirty. You're now divine. You're now not ungodly. You're godly in Christ. Now notice this. This is what is scandalous. The Jewish people could not understand it, even though it had been prophesied in their scriptures that the Messiah would be a father-like figure. Because remember in Isaiah 9, it says he's everlasting father. And then our oneness friends go, see, he's a father. That means he's God the Father. No. How many know I'm a father, but I'm not my father? 
You could have two persons being called a father. But notice this. This stumped the Jewish people. How would the Messiah be an everlasting father? Because if he's simply born from the line of David, he can't be an everlasting father. That's why Jesus taught that the Lord said to my Lord. That's why he brings up that psalm. How does David call him Lord if he's really David's son? Because he's David's son in the flesh, but in his existence, in his nature, he is the God of David. He's not only the root, he's not only the branch of David, but of Jesse, but he's also the root of Jesse. Are you listening? So here is what is scandalous in the gospel is that not only do we get to share in his, in his inheritance as co-inheritors being in the image of the son, but that he becomes the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. In other words, he forever will have the flesh that he took on his incarnation. As long as he has that flesh, my flesh can be glorified as we're about ready to see. As long as Jesus identifies with humanity, we can rule and reign and be like him. What a blessing to be in the bosom of Jesus as he's in the bosom of the Father. And those he predestined, he called. Those he called, he justified. Those he justified, what did he do? He glorified. How many are ready to be glorified in Christ? Not outside of Christ. Now, just in case someone is wondering from the passages we read in Isaiah, well, I thought he doesn't share his glory with another. He doesn't. All the glory that we get in the glorification is Jesus' glory. It isn't ours. Do you see the difference? I hope somebody sees the difference. Otherwise, you think I just contradicted myself. The glory that the cults talk about we have inherently outside of Christ is a glory of, de- of, of divination. It is one of witchcraft. It is one of false doctrine. That is not what we are saying. We are saying any glorification we get that is placed upon us always has Jesus' name on it. I never get a glory that belongs to me, but I get to share in a glory that belongs to Jesus because of what he did. Because Jesus became man as God himself. He could never give that to a sinner. That's why he had to become a man. And as as you can see him sitting on the throne, use your imagination, as his glory radiates and penetrates the earthly body that he inherited, that is now my conduit for glorification. Can I hear an amen? Now let's go to our next scriptures. Vinny, would you come in quickly? Let's, let's go through this. Hebrews chapter 2. So we get born again, and then we're made into co-heirs, sharing in the image of Christ. But not only that, we begin to serve Jesus Christ. How many want to serve Jesus Christ? How many want to go out into this world and represent him? partaking in what he has given to us in his name, not in our own name. We come in the name of Jesus when we pray. We come in the name of Jesus when we preach. We come in the name of Jesus when we bless. Amen. Hebrews 2.5 says, It is not to angels that he has subjected the world to come about which we are speaking. But there is a place where someone has testified, What is mankind that you are mindful of them? The son of man that you care for them or care for him. You made them a little lower than the angels. You crowned them with glory and honor and put everything underneath their feet. And putting everything underneath them, God left nothing that is not subjected to them or subject to them. Yet at the present, we do not see everything subject to them. Do you feel like you're ruling and reigning all the time? No, I don't always feel like it. How about when you're stuck in traffic? Don't you feel like you could just do what Moses did and just part the the traffic? I'm going to part the traffic. 
See, the Bible says he made uh, mankind to rule and reign so that everything might be subject to mankind. But it doesn't look like everything is subject to mankind. Verse 9, but we do see Jesus. Somebody say, I see Jesus. Come on, somebody say, I see Jesus. Come on, say, but I see Jesus who was made a little lower than the angels for a little while. But now he's crowned with glory and honor because he suffered death so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. Why do we get resurrected? Because he was resurrected. Why do we get forgiveness? Because he took our sin the divine exchange why do we get glory and honor because he got back what we lost keep on reading verse 10 in bringing many somebody say many thank you in bringing many sons and daughters to glory in Christ not on our own it was fitting that God for whom and through whom everything exists should make the pioneer of their salvation perfect through what he suffered Do you know that for Christ to be perfect as a Savior, he was perfect in nature, never sinned, but to be perfect as a Savior, he had to go through the same temptations, the same sin, and the same uh, temptations to sin, and the same trials that we would face. He had to face it. That's why the Bible says there's no temptation that's come to you or to I that he hasn't gone through. Otherwise, not talking about nature, but I'm talking about the role of a Savior. Wouldn't that be an imperfect Savior? If he couldn't identify with everybody's temptation, and if he didn't take on everybody's tests and trials, how could he be a perfect Savior? He'd be lacking in some way. He wouldn't be complete. But the Bible says he he completed his assignment by all that he suffered. Verse 11, both the one who makes people holy and those who are made holy are of the same what? You are in the family of God now. Come on, somebody. Hallelujah. As that painting goes, someone's trying to touch God, but they can't do it. They've been separated by their sin. They're trying to pray five times towards Mecca. They're trying to do the crooked chicken and be a vegan in yoga pants. They're trying to pedal their bike and preach the prophet Joseph Smith. But there's only one way that we get connected back in. That's through Jesus Christ. And he doesn't just say, you're my sheep out there. He says, you're my sheep in my house and you will dwell with me and my family forever so Jesus is not ashamed to call them brothers and sisters not your neighbor and say Jesus is not ashamed to call me his brother or his sister he is not ashamed listen now to the sound of heaven listen now to the sound of heaven he says I will declare your name to my brothers and sisters this is the son talking to the father father I will declare your name to my brothers and sisters. In the assembly, I will sing your praises. Even Jesus will sing the praises of the Father with us. Just like there's people here that honor my wife as I'm honoring her. Do you understand? Jesus can honor the Father without being less than the Father in nature. My wife and I are the same in nature, but I can honor her. Jesus will join in honoring the Father with us. And again... He says, I will put my trust in him. Jesus speaking, I'll trust the Father that while I'm here, he won't do anything wrong. He'll treat me well. He won't forsake me. And again, he says, here I am. 
Now notice this. Jesus speaking to the Father. He says, here I am, Father, and the children that God has given me. Here is the children you have given me. Since the children have flesh and blood, he too shared in their humanity so that by his death he might break the power of him who holds the power of of death. That is who? The, The devil. Whose power did he break? The devil. And free those who all their lives were held in slavery by the fear of death. Anyone here ever been afraid of death? The Bible says, don't be afraid. You belong to Jesus. You're his familia. You have a place in his kingdom. Amen. He says, for surely it is not angels he helps, but it's Abraham's descendants. And let's go down to this last one here in John chapter 14. He says, don't let your hearts be troubled. Believe in God, but all, he says, you believe in God, believe also in me. My father's house has many rooms. If it were not so, I would have told you, but I'm going to prepare a place for you. And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you with me so that you also may be where I am, right on his papa's lap in the throne room. Amen. You know the place. You know the way to the place I am going. And Jesus said, on that day, you will realize, watch this, here it is. On that day when this is done, we will realize once and for all that Jesus, he said, I am in the Father, and you are in me, and I am in you. He said, on that day, you're going to realize as close as I have been to the Father, as as close as you and I have been. Can you stand up and give it up for Jesus today? Emmanuel, God is with us. We thank you for coming in the flesh to be with us, to redeem us. Band and altar workers, would you come as we begin to pray? Father, would you come and comfort our hearts today through Jesus' blood and sacrifice by the power of the Holy Spirit. In an attitude of prayer, if you do not yet have Jesus as your Lord, the Bible says you cannot have the Father. And in other words, you cannot have eternal life. But as we get ready to close out in prayer right now, I want to make an opportunity for every person that hears me to have a relationship with Jesus and therefore to have a relationship with the Father few moments right now, would you examine your heart? If you are not sure of your salvation, this also applies to you. If you're not confident in who you are in Christ, do not take any chances. Do not live with doubt, unbelief, or wavering of opinion. And just begin to pray along with those who may be praying this for the first time. Begin to pray and say, Father, I come in the name of Jesus. You know, something like this from your heart. I believe that you died, were buried, rose again for the forgiveness of my sins, for the transformation of my life, to bring me into the family of God. Save me, change me, I want to be made new. Pray something like that and declare him to be Lord. And he will do for you what he has done for others. As they're praying right now, if you're here today and you're already a Christian, and you would say, I'm sure of my salvation, but I've been doubting my closeness to God. I've been feeling far away. Would you begin to pray right now and ask the Holy Spirit to remind you of how close you are to Jesus right now. There is no separation between the Holy Spirit and your spirit right now if you are, in fact, a Christian. You are in Christ today by the power of the Holy Spirit. 
And if you have sinned or maybe as a Christian you've had issues, would you deal with those between you and God? Call on his name. Say, Jesus, forgive me. Jesus, change my thoughts and my mind. Be renewed today. A few moments right now. A few moments right now. A few moments right now. People coming to Christ and those who are already in Christ to have that deep relationship. That deep relationship. It can't be substituted, can it? Those of us here, come on, we know what it's like to be close to God. Some of us know that, oh, there's nothing like it in this whole world. You can't compare it. In the next few moments, you're more than welcome to come up here. Even now you can, but we'll dismiss. But I want us to make sure we're all on the same page. Because those who are on fire for God and you're ready to change the world for Jesus, I want you right now just to begin to lift him up and give him the highest praise and ask for him to use you this week to be an ambassador, a co-heir with Christ, that you'll be someone that can speak his word, that you'll be someone that can change the world through his power. And we give you the highest praise. And we give you the highest praise. Come on. And we give you the highest praise. You deserve it all. Come on, somebody say it today. You deserve the highest praise. I was out, but you brought me in. I was down, but you lifted me up. I give you the highest 